Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. In this week's episode, I had the privilege and sheer honor of interviewing one inspirational and phenomenal woman. Her story is full of resilience, determination, and throughout her life, it's been her persistence and never give up attitude that's seen her achieve some amazing feats. Born with a very visible and what some would say a very limiting disability, she hasn't let that define her, but instead has continued to push the limits of what's possible. I don't want to give too much away in the introduction, so I'll let her share with you in this discussion her story, her reflections and thoughts that will leave you simply inspired, as they did me, as I caught up with the wonderful Kerry Lee Gockle. Kerry Lee, welcome to Share. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Pretty excited to hear your story. I'd love it if you just start with, yeah, a snapshot of your journey and who is Kerry Lee Gockle. Wow. Okay. That's a <laughs> that's an open ended start. So I suppose I'll go back to the very beginning. Um, I was actually born in South Africa back in the eighties. So my mum and dad didn't actually know that I was going to be born without arms when I popped out. It was a surprise to everybody, including the doctor and my parents. So it was a very steep learning curve for them as new parents. But I have been blessed with the most amazing family. My parents have just taken my disability in their stride from day one. We've never, ever dwelled on why it happened or, you know, there was never an opportunity for any pity parties in our home at all. Um, it was just a case of getting on and finding solutions to living without a pair of hands. Um, we actually moved to Australia in 1993. We moved to Perth originally and spent two years in Perth, and then we came to Brisbane in 96. I have gone to mainstream schooling my entire life. I went to uni and I'm a lawyer by qualification, although I haven't worked as a lawyer since 2010 when I had a bit of a career change. And I do a little bit of motivational speaking on the on the side at the moment. I absolutely love to swim. That's probably one of the great loves of my life, second only to my husband, Paul, who I married in 2015. I think that's probably as bad and much of an intro as I can give you without giving away all the secrets at once. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't want to give them all away at once. I'm definitely going, you've touched on a number of topics there that I'm definitely going to ask you about. Yeah. Tell me about what it was like growing up. Um, look, I, I don't actually remember my childhood being particularly difficult. I always knew that I was different to the other kids, but I actually credit mum and dad with, in, in, in the very early days, giving me a full-length mirror in my bedroom. My grandfather made it for me, so I grew up seeing my body every single day. I knew from day one that I looked different, but accepted that my my normal was perfectly okay. And so there were little things along the way that were challenges, I suppose. One of the first things that we encountered was when I was ready to start school, the South African Education Department wanted me to go to a special school. 
which was actually an hour away from our home. We lived in a really small little coastal town and there was a perfectly good primary school there, which my parents had assumed I would go to. But when it came to starting school, the, the education department said, no, 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 Kerry needs to go to a special school. My parents said, well, why? There's there's nothing affecting her ability to learn. Of course, special schools have a very important place in our education system and there are some students that a special school is absolutely the right place for them to to learn. But for me, that that wasn't the case. I, I didn't need to, I didn't need to go to a special school and certainly not an hour away from our home. So my parents are like, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. But they said, we really are opposed to this. So I was sent to a number of child psychologists along the way and they were, <laughs> their focus was making sure that going to a mainstream school wasn't going to adversely affect my development which we all knew it wouldn't. But anyway, we had to we had to satisfy others. And my parents were actually blown away when one of these psychologists said to them, you know, we, we're quite concerned that you're giving Kerry Lee a false sense of being a normal child. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And my mum said, oh, well, if it makes you feel better, I'll wake up, and wake up every day and tell her she's not normal. Would, would that be a better course of action for us to take? <laughs> so anyway, it was decided eventually to let me attend the local primary school for a term. And they said that if I showed any signs of struggling to keep up with the other kids, then I would have to go to the special school, which was, an, as I said, an hour away from where we lived. So I think I was in about the top five students academically at that end of the first term. So I laugh and say that I think I gave them the middle finger. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely did. Tell me that decision, kind of a sliding door moment, I suppose, that if they did force you go, to go to a special school, do you think that would have had a difference in your life? I think so. Um, I think certainly that Back in the 80s and potentially back in South Africa, you know, when I started school, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that special schools were as well catered to, to different disabilities. And I think it was a case of, well, if you had a disability, you went to the one school, not necessarily the school that was best suited to you. So I'm just not sure that it would have catered specifically to, to my needs. It just would have been the case that because I was different, that's the school that I went to. I think that nowadays special schools are far more nuanced. You know, they have they have such amazing programs in place, and I think there's far more room for for identifying which school would actually best suit a child with with different learning needs. I don't know what the outcome would have been, but I don't I don't think that I would have thrived in that environment like I did in the schools that I went to. Yeah, well, how amazing that your parents fought for that. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they fought quite hard. So I wouldn't say that life has been a string of battles. It hasn't. But there are certain steps along the way where we're like, nope, this is something that we are actually going to dig our heels in and it's a it's a firm no and you know, we've we've picked our battles and that was that was one of the early ones. Now some of the challenges with starting school, obviously you don't have hands. Yep. So you can't write. So how did you have to adapt? Oh, so I do everything with my feet. As soon as I was old enough to start sort of naturally picking up crayons or pens, my, my parents let me experiment with using my feet. They did actually try and encourage me to hold a pen in my mouth and write with a pen in my mouth because that was what we'd actually observed with other people who had no arms, but I just didn't want a bar of it and I always reverted back to using my feet. So they let me continue doing it that way. If that's the way that I wanted to do it, then they let me do it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, when I, when I started school, I was actually sitting, I think I was sitting on the floor for the first couple of weeks with all of my stuff on the floor. And then my, my grandfather modified a school desk for me and cut the legs off one of the old wooden school desks. And so then I had a, a desk low down. I would sit at the desk on a normal chair with my desk down low. It sounds like you certainly had great family support. I did. I was really, really lucky. Very, very lucky. 
My dad's always been very, very handy. He can fix anything that breaks. So we had dad who could modify stuff. My mum and my my grandmother were both excellent on a sewing machine. So because normal clothes were difficult to fit my body, mum and granny got onto the sewing machine and I had all these little outfits made. And my other grandmother was actually very good at knitting. So all of my little jumpers and, and warm clothes were made by my, by my other granny. So we had all the bases covered. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. Now, going through school, did you encounter the bullying? I'm sure you did. I did. I did. I think that I think that most kids encounter bullying. But yeah, certainly, I, th- I think it probably affected me the most. I remember when I was in lower junior school, I look really funny when I run. I still do. You, it's amazing how much your arms <laughs> aid your balance when you're running. So I used to try and participate as much as I could, but I, I do look a little bit ridiculous when I break into a run and I admit that. And kids would often tease me about how I looked when I was running and say I looked funny and they'd laugh. And I remember just being a little bit embarrassed about my appearance with those sorts of things, but not to the point where, where it would stop me. It would just, I'd come home and have a little bit of a cry. But again, our home was always... A sanctuary, so I knew that I could. I was always coming home to a safe space, and Mum and Dad would, you know, talk about it. And you know, the four of us. I've got a younger sister, Nikki. We would sit at the, you know, dinner table every night and share stories about our days. So we had a very safe space and a very, a very, very supportive family. But I think that it was upper junior school and lower high school where bullying kind of got a bit uncomfortable again. It was just. I suppose teenagers being teenagers and, you know, as an adult, I I reflect on it now and I think the kids that did the bullying were experiencing their own insecurities. You know, they were experiencing a level of discomfort within themselves. They weren't happy with themselves and I think that you often find that with bullying that's at at the root of it. I don't think that kids who, you know, who are happy and contented and, and all of that will ordinarily revert to bullying. Sure, there's always playground teasing. I think most of us will tease tease somebody in our lifetime, but that, that true bullying, that nastiness, I think, comes from kids who are, there's something going on for them and there's a level of insecurity within them and that's how it plays out. So, And for them, I suppose it probably, they didn't understand they probably didn't understand, but I think I was also just, it was like my, my disability and my difference is so visible. It was so easy to pick on as well. But again, it was always the case with us that they're just words, you know, they're just, they're just words. And they, and if they, if you don't let them land on you, then they mean nothing. So I knew that what was being said wasn't true. I knew that some of the stuff that was thrown at me by a particularly nasty boy in grade seven, some really awful things were said to me. I know that they weren't true and so they were just words. They they kind of jar you at the time that they're said, but if you don't let them affect you, then they don't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now through school, you had some good friends? I had amazing friends at school, yeah. Yeah, I had some really, really great friends at school and I'm, I'm friends with a lot of them still today. So That's fantastic and they would have been a source of strength for you through those times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I always had a, a bit of a, a tribe who, who would rally around. I do remember my, my best friend through high school getting very, very angry with one of the boys who was having a go at me one day. And I said to her, you can't retaliate. You can't say bad things back. She's like, I can't listen to it. I'm like, well, don't, don't give it back to him because they were just as bad as he is. So. <laughs> but no, I had a, had a lot of people who would, who would happily help fight my battles. <laughs> Now, there's a lot of things that people that are born with arms, mm-hmm. we probably take a lot of things for granted. What are some of the things that, you know, you can reflect upon that we probably take for granted that 
that you had to find different ways to do? I think the biggest the biggest thing for me through school, growing up, and even still today, and I'm really comfortable sharing it even, you know, on this platform, Steve, is that when I'm out of my own home, I can't go to the bathroom by myself. So I can manage when I'm here at home, I've got a dressing aid that sits on my wall in the walk-in robe and provided I'm wearing elasticized pants, I can get my pants and undies up and down and go to the bathroom on my own. But the minute I'm outside of my own home, I need I need assistance. So that's always been probably a, a source of Probably a source of concern, like when it, whenever I'm out of my own home by myself, I'm always thinking about, okay, who am I going with? You know, has that person helped me in the bathroom before? Would I be comfortable asking them to help me in the bathroom? And so that's, you know, that's the one thing and probably the biggest thing that is a, a challenge for me. But as I've got older and more comfortable in my own skin, I've also got really comfortable being quite transparent with people about the things that I need help with on a day-to-day basis. And including in the workplace. So for years, I relied on formal support services in the workplace. I had community care agencies coming in to give me a hand in the bathroom twice a day. Over time, I got more comfortable, you know, with the people that I worked with and I shared with, you know, because people would say, oh, who's that lady that's always, you know, waiting at the door for you at 10.30? And I'm like, oh, that's, you know, that's the community care agency. They're coming in to give me a hand with the bathroom. Oh, so you can't go to the bathroom on your own? No, no, I can't go to the loo on my own and I need help, you know, just with the clothing. And so I've, I've been quite deliberate in sharing that. And the outcome of that is that over time, and it doesn't take very long, I've had workmates and colleagues say, hey, in between those visits, if you ever need a hand, please just come and ask me. I, I don't mind helping you at all. I kind of hung on to the community care services for so long. They're almost like a bit of a safety blanket, even though towards the end of my time with them, you know, I was going to the loo more than twice a day at work and I was very comfortable asking, you know, friends at work to give me a hand. But eventually it took one of my mates to say, why don't you just terminate the services? You've got so many of us here who are more than happy to help you. There's like 12 of us who can give you a hand during the day. You really don't need to have a formal service, and that's that's when I got rid of them. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's interesting in life that you know, I talk about the power of vulnerability. Yeah, but it's interesting. Many times through life, we can feel alone. But one of the key things is is that when you share your story or you need help and you ask for help, there's always people there that'll help you. Yeah, and I don't know why I forget that because time and time again, I'm reminded of the fact that if you just ask. Humans are wired to want to help each other. We're, we're all we're all wired to actually want to live in community. We're not designed to live in isolation, and so it just gets reinforced over and over again. And so that's I think that's one of the the greatest things for me is is knowing that I've got so many people, so many friends, family members who are more than happy to to step in and, and lend a hand. That I don't I don't have to have as as much formal support as what I probably thought I was going to need when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Now, I wanted to ask, learning to drive. Mm. <laughs> Interesting time. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, so that's actually a cool story. When I was ready to learn to drive, we had a few years earlier been in contact with a lady from Germany who's, who's almost exactly the same as me. So she's got complete absence of both of her arms and does everything with her feet. And she had a vehicle with foot steering modifications. So we contacted her and got all the information and got it translated from German into English. But what we realized is that these modifications were about $50,000 back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Wow. And we would have to buy, they could only be fitted on a VW Golf or Passat. 
we just didn't have those sorts of financial resources. My parents weren't in a position to buy me a VW Golf or Passat and pay for these modifications. You know, back then we didn't have the wonderful system that is the NDIS to assist with funding those sorts of things. So we're like, nope, we're going to have to find an alternative. So we actually got in touch with a guy by the name of Brett Nielsen, who's the first thalidomide survivor here in Australia. He's also got no arms and does everything with his feet. And he's like, come on down to my property in Mullumbimby and I'll I'll show you how to drive. So we took a road trip down to Mullumbimby and Brett lived on acreage at the time. And it was in my parents' Camry. And he said to me, right, he's like, I'll drive you know, I'll take over for now. So I jumped into the passenger seat and I was so excited because I'd never driven anything. Like talking to a, you know, somebody who'd never ridden a bike properly, never jumped on her parents' lap and steered a car. So steering anything was a big deal for me. And my parents were actually watching from his back deck and we drove into the middle of the paddock and we just sat there for like 20 minutes. And my mum and dad are like, what on earth is going on? Because this car's not moving. And, you know, Brett was still in the driver's seat and I was still in the passenger seat. What they didn't know is that inside that car, Brett, he said to me, you hop in the driver's seat and he said, put your seatbelt on. And I was like, oh, I can't put a seatbelt on. I've never put a seatbelt on in my life because my mum and dad had always done it. Like there's no need for me to do it myself. And I said to him, oh, I can't put a seatbelt on, Brett. I'm like, can you just whack it on and then we can start driving? And he said, nope. He's like, if you can't put a seatbelt on, he's like, I'm not teaching you how to drive. I was like, oh, for goodness sake. So the problem was for me is that I had to use my right leg to put the seatbelt on, but my <laughs> my right leg has always been my stabilizing leg, so it's nowhere near as flexible as my left. It just doesn't move the way that my left leg does. So here I am. My hip felt like it was going to dislocate. I had muscles that I was convinced were tearing and I was sweating and Brett's like, come on, you can do it, go. I was like, I'm going to hit you in the face. Anyway, eventually got to the point where I just heard this click of the seatbelt and I was exhausted. Like I was absolutely wrecked after that. But that's when he, he showed me how to drive. So I learned to, I learned to drive his way, which was one foot up on the steering wheel, my right leg and my left foot were down on the pedals. So yeah, I drove like that for, for 20 years. I got my license first time round. I had lots and lots of driving lessons with a specialist driving instructor. And this is actually part of the story as well. So Ivor Booker was the man who taught me how to drive. And I drove that way up until probably, how long ago was that now? 2019, I realized that the way that I drove had to change. My back was getting quite sore. My hips were starting to ache. My knees would ache. It's just, you know, getting old and <laughs> your body's not quite the same as it was when I was 18. And so we, we revisited foot steering modifications and I came across a slightly different foot steering system to what I'd looked at all those years ago. And now, of course, with the NDIS, there was the option for, for some funding to assist with the cost of installing those mods. So I got these foot steering modifications fitted, but the whole my whole way of driving almost had to flip because I was now forced to steer with my left foot and operate the pedals with my right. So not only was I steering using a different system, but I was also using the opposite feet to what I was used to. And I thought that I was going to be able to jump in and take off and everything would be sweet, but it was actually quite quite a long process. It was almost like relearning to drive, although I knew what the road rules were and I knew how a car operated. So it's it's quite, it's difficult to explain because I went back to feeling like a learner driver, but not quite a learner driver. I mean, they did say maybe we should just get you some lessons just so that you've got you know the safety of an instructor there in case something goes wrong. And lo and behold, but guess who my instructor is a whole twenty years later? I have a booker. <laughs> so- oh wow. Yeah. So the same man who taught me to drive exa- almost 20 years to the day 
came back and he's like, this is a bit strange. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, Tell me, when you had your first driving lesson with yeah. Ivan, how was that? Oh, it, it was it was great. Like it was very cool. I did I did admire his courage though because he arrived and you know we introduced ourselves and mum and dad were there and he's like, well, I'll be honest with you, I've never driv- I've never taught somebody who driv- who drives with their feet. I'm like, mate, you are brave. <laughs> so you know to think that this guy is happy to jump into a car with somebody who you know he's he's never he had never seen anybody drive with their feet before. So. Yeah, well, I can tell you I've got two sons, 16 and 14. Uh, we've got older, three older kids as well yeah. with, with my wife, Tracy. But the 16-year-old's got his learners now. I, like I'm, I'm kind of stressing getting in a car with him with arms. I don't know how I'd be without arms. Uh, yeah, but it was, it was great. I mean, I, I had, I just, as I said, I had lots of lessons. I think I had about 17 driving lessons. But that was also just so that we made sure that when I did go for my test, I, I nailed it because I didn't want there to be any sort of suggestion that perhaps it wasn't safe for me to drive or, or anything like that. I wanted to make sure that I could demonstrate that I was a safe driver and this is and this worked. So a lot of determination there. Yeah, yeah. It took my, my dad and I always laugh about because dad would take me driving in between lessons and because I'd never driven a car or anything, I, I really struggled with my sense of space on the road. I couldn't, I took me ages to actually learn where to position the car on the road. And dad would be like, no, you're going to hit the curb and you would feel the wheels of the camera bump. And, you know, that otherwise I'd be too, you know, too far on the, the median strip or I don't know. It just, it took a while for us to get there, but it, it was fun. I enjoyed learning to drive. I love the reflection when Brett took you out, you know, to his car. And uh, I love that reflection you said around the seatbelt and, I'm not doing it for it. You do yourself. And and really, that's probably something that you've, to a certain point, had to, to run with through your life. Yep. It was just, um, I, I it hadn't occurred to any of us that that was going to be part of the process. I think I was just so used to mum and dad strapping me in. I thought, oh, yep, this is something I'm actually going to have to learn to do for myself. Like, I'm not going to have somebody in the car with me every time I drive. So, yeah, the real yeah. sort of light bulb moment. Going from that excitement of, oh, I'm going to learn to drive yeah. to then, Oh, hang on! I can't. How do I put my seatbelt on? You yeah. know, you, it would have been. Yeah, you just wouldn't have thought about it. No, and the the mental exhaustion from that day, I can just remember like it was the stress and anxiety of trying to get that seatbelt on, but then also like the neural fatigue of learning something like driving a car. I can remember when we went back to Brisbane. I sat in the, <laughs> sat in the back of the car and started to cry. My parents were like, "Why are you crying?" I'm like, I don't know. I'm just so overwhelmed. I was just so emotionally exhausted from the experience that I sat there and sobbed for about five minutes. <laughs> so, That's such a great story. Yeah. Kerry Lee, can I ask you, what was your first job? My very first job was actually working as a teacher's aide for a numeracy and literacy course for intellectually disabled adults. So I was trying really hard to find work when I was still at school, when I sort of hit that 14, 15-year-old age and all my friends were getting part-time jobs and earning their own money and I really wanted to have a job too. So I actually went through an employment agency called Horizon Foundation. I still remember that. And Horizon Foundation specifically assisted people with disabilities to find work. And we tried a, a whole number of avenues, but it was actually quite difficult to find a job that was going to suit me given that I had no experience as a kid but also couldn't go to your McDonald's and Hungry Jack's and all of those retail or, or food outlet jobs. The normal starting jobs. No, it was going to have to be something clerical or, you know, a little bit left of centre. 
anyway, it actually happened that Horizon were running this um, adult numeracy literacy course at their premises. And they said to me, we do need a teacher's assistant. Do you think you'd be interested in doing that? I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And I remember they said to me, oh, what's what's 100 divided by 10? I'm like, 10? Like, that's your hourly rate. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I distinctly remember my very first day in that job because I got changed out of my school uniform and off I go to my first day of work. And as I walked into this class with all of these adults, they looked at me and they all burst out laughing. And they said, you look so funny with no arms. And it was just... It was just that very um, unfiltered <laughs> sort of reaction from from these adults, and I was a bit taken aback. But I'm like, well, they're not they're not being mean; they're just saying exactly how how they feel. So, yeah. Well, it was, I'm guessing being in a an environment with other people with a disability as well, it was a supportive environment. Oh, very much so, very much so. And I, and I just learned so much. I learned so much about being patient, and I think I learned so much about other disabilities as well. And I spent a lot of my time in that job with a lady who had severe epilepsy and it was quite confronting for me because I, one of the things that we did together was I was teaching her how to count money with a view to, you know, if she did go to the shops and had to hand over money that she could count her change and make sure that she had been given the right amount of change and also, you know, had the ability to give, hand over the right amount of money and that sort of thing. And I remember one afternoon, this lady kept having seizures it was probably every every 15 minutes or so. And so for, for me, who was, you know, 14 and I hadn't ever experienced anything like that to, you know, to, to stay calm and support her and make sure that she was okay. And then when she'd be right to go again, I had to start all all over again with the with counting the, the money because she she'd forgotten what we'd done before she'd had a seizure. So it was a very eye-opening role, but a very, very rewarding job. And I'm really glad that that was my first job. I think as well for those of us that were born with arms and have arms, you know, when you're obviously in that kind of situation and you're caring for someone and that, like all of us, obviously you use your arms to to hug, to comfort. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's obviously a hard part of it. Yeah, I, used, I think I used to sort of rub up against her shoulder and be like, you okay, Elle? You're all right. <laughs> so, yeah, just um, Oh, I, I love that job. I'm yeah, so pleased that that was my first experience in the workforce and not necessarily a typical retail job. Yeah, and how has your career progressed since then? Um, so I I studied law and business at uni. I decided before I before I graduated that I was would get a job, try and get a job in a law firm, and sort of get my foot in the door before before I graduated, just because I knew the competition would be quite fierce for those grad positions, and I'd ha- I'd had part time work before that, but it was sort of in my last two years of uni that I decided that I'd actually transition into into the legal profession and start, you know, making inroads into being a lawyer. And so I started going for, you know, I put my written application in and on on paper, you know, I was a good candidate. So I got interviews fairly quickly. But when I started to started go for these interviews, I can remember saying to my mum and dad, I'm like, oh, do you think I should tell them that I, I don't I don't have arms or should I just rock up on the day? And so which I tried both tacks and I, I initially went with giving people a heads up that I that I had no arms. And in some of the conversations when I when I did fall I shouldn't say forewarn, but when I did tell people that I that I had a disability, I could sometimes detect that sort of subtle change in their voice. So there was the like, oh, oh. Wasn't quite expecting that. I, I got a sense some of the time that perhaps their minds were made up before I got to the interview that I may not have been capable of, of doing the job. 
Certainly that wasn't the case in all, in all interviews. I'm, I'm not saying that that was the only reason that I took a while to find work, but I definitely found that there was a little bit of a, a preconception formed before I got to some of those interviews. So I did actually try and <laughs> I tried the element of surprise after that. And that also didn't quite work as well as I had pictured it going. One of the interviews I walked into, the poor gentleman was so taken aback by my appearance that he didn't actually make eye contact during our entire interview. He just stared at his desk. And so that's that's off-putting for anybody being interviewed because I just felt that no matter what I said, his mind was still stuck on the fact that there was a person with no arm sitting in front of him, not the fact that I was actually quite capable of doing the work that um, that was advertised. So eventually I decided that I probably needed the help of a recruitment agent and was connected with a recruitment agent who recruited specifically for law firms. And she basically became my cheerleader and I got a role in a law firm here in Brisbane doing their debt recovery. So it wasn't it wasn't quite legal work, but it was still in a law firm and I thought, well, I can work my way from being in the accounts department into being a junior solicitor, which is what I did. Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. So it was um it, it took a little while. Like I it, it it was probably a solid year of interviews and applications before I got that that first job in that law firm. Part of the reason that it took a while as well as a lot of those entry-level jobs were things like filing or attending property settlements. You know, back we're talking almost 20 years ago now, everything was paper-based. So it was heavy, heavy files, paperwork, volumes of paper, all of which were, were something that wasn't really feasible for me to do. So it was trying to find a job that I could actually do, but also at an entry level. And that's why the accounts department was so great because it was getting on the phone and chasing up clients who hadn't paid their bills. It was perfect. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was obviously another opportunity for you to showcase your your determination, your resilience and your persistence. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I remember getting quite stressed when I when I couldn't secure a job. I said to my mum and dad, I said, oh, you know, maybe I should look outside of law, like maybe law is just not going to work out for me. And I was also, I needed I needed more of an income as well. I was studying and I, I needed to, to start earning some proper money. And I can't remember who it was. It certainly wasn't anybody in my family, but somebody said, oh, have you thought about the disability support pension? I'm like, no, and I won't think about the disability support pension. That's not an option for me. I'm really capable I know that I can be an asset to an organization. I just need to get that foot in the door. Well, that takes that takes me back to your story around the special school or normal school thing. Yeah. Yep. I mean that that never crossed my mind that I was going to not work. I just I just had to keep going, keep keep trying and got there. So Yeah. My mum actually worked for over 30 years in the disability services. So she worked with clients and she worked in that sector. And I, I asked her, well, one of her last roles, she's 75 now, but mm-hmm. one of her last roles was working with an NDS support agency, mm-hmm. supporting clients and, and families with being able to access the NDIS services. And I asked her what in over 30 years what are reflections on of how far we've come as a society in regards to support for people with a disability? What are some of your reflections on where it was, where it is now and and where it needs to go? I think my early experiences with with support services were, were limited to those care agencies coming into my school and then into my home in the early days just to give me a hand with getting dressed and getting ready. And I remember that one of the challenges that I, I faced with them was 
I couldn't get them to to have a full appreciation for the fact that, and even when they came into my workplace, was appreciating the fact that it was really important to me to to have a sense of dignity and that I didn't want a continuous stream of different people every day. Like I, I focus a lot on the relationship that I have with the person and building that rapport and building that trust. So I didn't want to see a new face every single day because you almost, you know, you, you start back at the very beginning. But I found that that was often the model of care. It was, wasn't so much a focus on having a team of people, it's just what whoever was available on that particular day. It, it got better. You know, I made it quite clear throughout my time with formal support services that I, I that I wanted that continuity with a handful of people. I didn't want to see somebody new every single day. So there were improvements there. But certainly now my husband and I have, have support services in our home twice uh, twice a week just to give us a hand with hanging up loads of washing and making the bed and, and all that sort of thing. And certainly the focus there has been on matching us with people who have, have similar values to us and that we actually that we actually connect with. So the agency that we use has done a brilliant job of connecting us with people that we really get on with and that we don't see as support workers, but that we see as part of our family now. And that's kind of been the key for us. Yeah. And that trust is a really big thing, isn't it? It's huge. It's huge. You know, to have people in your home and often helping you with some fairly personal things as well, that trust and that rapport and that connection with somebody is of utmost importance. So I think that that has certainly been, well, I've seen that shift from when I first used support services all those years ago. Yeah. My mum earlier this year, she had one hip done and she had the other hip done. So it was interesting for her because then she had to access these support services. Yeah. Uh, in her home. And it was a bit confronting to her really, because obviously she'd spent a career supporting people with a disability, but she had to access these services and she had a team. And then one day a, a guy turned up to help her and she was like, uh, uh, she said it was fine, you know, and, and it was great, but it was hard because it was like, oh, hang on, where's, where's the lady that has been coming normally? But she said she just had to kind of get over herself and it was good, but it was interesting. I took her back to London, to England to see family last year as part of our uh, Europe trip we did for my niece's wedding. And it was interesting going through the airports and just seeing from a different perspective because this was prior to her having her hip replacements. So she couldn't walk as much and now she's she's mobile which is great and it's helped her but we were sitting in kind of those support areas in the airport waiting for a wheelchair or waiting for someone or to to help us i said to mum seeing this on this side sitting on this side of the airport and seeing what people with a disability go through I know you've done some traveling. Yeah, my husband and I have done a fair bit of traveling. And I think that our experience is probably even different again to to what you experienced with your mum, only because we're both able to walk. And so often we we find that airport staff are really, really accommodating and letting us board early so that we don't have to stand in queues. And we're often also um, sort of shuffled to the front of a a customs queue (laughs) or the the baggage check queues just because they recognize that my husband in particular can't stand for long periods of time. Paul's got spina bifida, so he is actually partially paralyzed from the waist down, which I know doesn't make sense when I say he can walk, but partial paralysis, he can still walk. So because we're both mobile without the use of a wheelchair, but Paul's Paul's limitation is just that ability to stand for extended periods of time. We, we generally find that people are really, really accommodating in assisting us to, to minimize the amount of time on, on our feet. But again, it comes back to asking the question. We never enter 
an airport or an accommodation facility with the expectation that people are going to know what we need. So it's very much about politely asking for assistance and explaining why. And our experience has always been that people are really accommodating. So Yeah, and we found when we were planning the trip and mum's mobility wasn't that great and my brother's a travel agent. So I said to him, I said, oh, maybe we should get some special assistance at each airport. And mum was like, nope, nope, nope. And we get, get into Singapore and Singapore's a big airport. She's walking along struggling. Anyway, from there, I rang my brother and I said, on all the other bookings now, put special assistance on. And it did make a huge difference, a huge difference. There was a difference in some of the airports and some of the countries on the availability. Sometimes we had to wait a, a fair time and I'd be sitting there going, there's a wheelchair just there. Can I just get that wheelchair, put my <laughs> mum in it and wheel it? And they'd be like, oh no, we've got a process. What is it? But it's just there. <laughs> oh no, but that's in the a departures lounge. That's not in the incoming lounge. Yeah, but there's a door there. You could just push it through for me and I'll take it off. But then we'd wait an hour. By then mum's like, I'm just going to start walking, I think. So, but yeah. But it was just really interesting to see that that other side of things. And for me, get a really good appreciation on, on what people with a disability go through that able-bodied people just don't have to deal with. We, ta- we take it for granted. I can remember actually a couple of years ago, we were flying back from Tasmania and via Melbourne and our flight from Tassie had been slightly delayed. So we, we literally had to make a run for it at Melbourne to get to our flight and Paul can't run. <laughs> I think somebody must have seen us <laughs> doing our best to move with speed, but we just we were we're going to miss it. And one of those golf buggies that they have at the airport almost came to a screeching halt next to us. Like, do you guys need to ride? We're like, yes, please. <laughs> so jumped on and zoomed us, and we overtook everybody that was running in front of us. So it was great. But just just little things like that, like just that recognition that we, we could probably do with a hand, and that's and that's generally our experience. Paul and I have not have never ever had a a terrible experience while traveling. Ever. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Now, you mentioned your husband, Paul. How did you meet? We actually met through swimming. So, wow. Yeah. So, way back in the early 2000s, I was coming through the multi disability swimming program with Queensland Swimming. Now, by then, Paul had retired from his stint as a Paralympic swimmer for Australia. And he was actually working as one of the disability coordinators for Queensland Swimming. Now, I need to make it very clear that back then, the age gap between Paul and I is 18 years. So Paul is 18 years older than me. But when we met, (laughs) there was no romantic involvement. It was very much a swimmer and Paul was on pool deck at most of the competitions that I was at. So that's that's how I met him. We actually laugh about one of our early interactions because Paul was handing out the medals for one of the races that I'd just done and I'd come second. So I was getting the silver medal and he had this habit of folding up the lanyard of the medal rather than putting it over the person's head. He would fold it and hand it to you. So I thought, oh, oh, he'll twig when he gets to me. He didn't. And he stood there and he was holding out this medal. And I said, oh, do you think you could just pop it over my head? He's like, oh, I'm really sorry. Sure. So he puts it around my neck and then he sticks his hand out to shake mine. I'm like, just been through this. And he's like, I'm really so that was one of my very, very early interactions with Paul. I bet you've told that one a few times. A thousand times. He's like, I can't believe I did that. I'm like, it's okay. It's all right. I forgive you. And when I stopped competitive pool swimming, that was the last time that I saw Paul. And it was probably seven or eight years later. I was walking down Charlotte Street in the city and I saw Paul walking towards me. And because of his disability, he's got quite a distinctive gait. He, he sways a fair bit when he walks. And I'm like, oh recognize that gate that's Paul Gockle from Queensland Swimming Days and so we stopped and we had a chat and we made a plan to catch up for coffee in the new year that was back in 2012 
and uh, yeah, the rest is history. So yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now you mentioned your swimming. Yep. Where did that start? Well, I was a reluctant swimmer when I was younger. I was sent to swimming lessons like most young kids, but I was terrified of the water. I, I, I didn't love it at all. I learned to swim on my back. And the point there was that if I fell into water, they were trying to teach me to roll onto my back and float to the surface and kick to the edge. But at least if I was on my back, I could breathe. But eventually I had to learn to swim on my front. Weeks of lessons and I'd be like, I can't put my face and I can't put my face and I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And my mum <laughs> just had a gut full of watching this and she got up and gave me a shove off the top step with her foot so I toppled in. <laughs> Obviously there were swimming instructors there, I was perfectly safe, but she just thought it has to be a baptism of fire, otherwise she's never going to do it. And so I kind of flopped in and she's like, see, you're not going to drown, you're fine. And so I learned to swim on my front and then it was late high school. I was doing my obligatory 50-metre breaststroke race in the Interhouse Carnival and the school swimming coach, James, said to my sister, just coincidentally, he's like, who's this Terry Lee that everybody's cheering for? And he's like, it's Kerry Lee and she's my sister. Oh, tell her to come and train with my squad. So that was how I got into swimming and I did some competitive pool swimming for a while and I was studying at the time. I was doing two degrees at once. I was working part-time and I thought, right, I'm going to set my sights on being a representative swimmer. I'm going to make it to the Paralympics. And my friend's like, righto, is, is, are, you, are you going to drop something on your on your load? I'm like, no, I can do it all. I'm smart. I can I can pass uni and, and swim and work. And they said, okay. And, I mean, I was training up to nine sessions a week between the pool and the gym. I think I was working three days a week at the, at the time and then also trying to carry a full-time study load. And I got my results. <laughs> at the end of the semester and I'd failed every single one of my subjects at uni. And that was a, a defining moment because I had never failed anything in my life. And my parents thought it was hilarious. They actually had a good chuckle. I'm like, why are you laughing? This is devastating for me. And they said, well, maybe you need to consider whether you can actually do all of this. You, you may need to make some decisions around what's most important to you. My university degrees were the things that were most important to me back then. I really wanted to finish studying and get into the workforce. So that's when I stopped competitive pool swimming and did it more recreationally. And my coach suggested that I have a look at doing open water swimming and ocean swimming. And so I did my first ever ocean swim back in 2004. It was the Malula Bar pub to club swim, which is no longer run, but it was a one kilometer swim. And I did breaststroke kick. My dad swam next to me. And that was my introduction to open water swimming. A little bit different to being in the pool. Very different to being in the pool. Very, very different to being in the pool. It actually, it caught me. I mean, I'd always played around in the sea like most people, but I'd never swum seriously in the ocean. And I just remember being a little bit overwhelmed initially with not being able to see. And also that moment of, oh, wow, the sand's quite far away. What if something big comes up underneath me? <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <laughs> so just brushed the thought aside and I kept swimming. So, And you did the... 10-kilometer open water charity events, you've done that? Yeah, the last two years I've done the um, the island charity swim. So that swim raises money for three special schools on the Sunshine Coast. So all of the money that we raise as part of that event goes to those schools to get them the additional resources and equipment that they need for those kids to really thrive at school. So I just think it's a no-brainer for me to to use the sport I love to participate in an event like that. But the swim itself is is huge. We start at Majimba. And we go out to Old Woman Island and around Old Woman Island and then all the way down to Mooloolaba. So Yeah, wow. Yeah, tell me, I'm not a great swimmer, but I've, I swim. Yeah. Swimming direction, 
with just your legs, no arms? No arms. So I do I do a freestyle kick. I do wear a pair of short blade fins, though, just to give me that little bit of propulsion. I dare say that it's probably possible to swim 10 kilometers without fins, but not for me. I'm quite happy doing it with a pair of fins. And I roll from side to side. So I do a freestyle kick and I roll from side to side to breathe. I breathe bilaterally. I think it's really important, though, I, I, I make sure that for me, swimming is never a solo sport, especially not those big open water events. I always have a companion swimmer swimming alongside me just because it's not safe for me to go and do something like that entirely on my own. And with those big distances as well, even the able-bodied swimmers, we all have paddlers and a boat support crew as well, making sure that we're safe and that we're fed and all of that. So it's very much a, a team sport, even though you're doing all the work yourself, I suppose, so in terms of the actual swimming. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Have you got any goals into the future with your swimming? You've done 10 kilometers now. Is there any other bigger goals? There are, Steve. I worry now that if I put it out to the universe, then there's no, there's no backing out. So next year, my husband and I are planning to do the swim around Keppel. That's a, a 20 kilometer swim, and we're going to do it as a duo in a relay format. So Paul's going to do the first six kilometers. And I'm going to jump in and hopefully do the last 14. Wow. Yeah, for both of us, that'll be the furthest distance that we've both swum continuously. So, And is that raising money for something as well? No, the Swim Around Keppel is just an annual event run by the Keppel Island Swim Association. Val and Joy up in Yapoon run that. But we're also going to be teaming up with two of our friends, Lexi and Leah Tannock, who are going to tag team as as support swimmers for, for me. So we're the Gockles, they're the Tannocks, so we're going to be Team G&T. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. And G&Ts afterwards as well? Lots of G&Ts afterwards. <laughs> all, all the things afterwards, believe me. And I do think that after, if I can conquer that 14Ks, my friend Yup, who swam the Island Charity Swim with me this year, I think we're going to hatch a plan to tackle the full 20Ks together in 2025. So I'll do the, the 20Ks as a solo swim with Yup as my companion swimmer. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, wow. It's out in the universe now. No backing down. It's done. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> you got to do it now. That's it. <laughs> I look forward to hearing about that and, and seeing that happen as well. Now, Kerry Lee, you haven't been defined by your disability. In fact, it's probably been a gift. I think so. I often get asked whether I wish I had arms, which is a strange a strange question because I think if you've never had something, you can't miss them and you can't wish for it. But from a practical perspective, of course, a pair of arms would make a whole heap of things much, much easier. But I don't think that I would have had some of the experiences and I don't think I'd have some of the truly wonderful relationships with other people that I've got had I been born with arms and had my life been been different. Mm. Um, so in that respect, yeah, I think it's an absolute gift. I think that I get to spend a lot of quality time with people just by nature of the fact that I often ask people to be in my personal space because I'm asking for assistance. So there's always that time to chat and actually get to know people. Yeah, I, I don't I, – I said recently that I've never hated my situation. I've never wished for it to be any different. I've never – I mean – I wouldn't be human if I didn't go through periods of feeling a little bit low. And when things got a little bit tough, sure, I had periods of feeling down, but I've never ever had the sense of I want a different life or I want this to, to completely change or this is this is a terrible situation. That's that's never been in my dialogue at all. 
Now, those those times when you have felt low, mm. how do you mentally get yourself out of that? I think it was part of it was actually allowing myself to acknowledging that the the feelings were were valid. It was at a time it was probably my early twenties when a lot of my friends were getting into serious relationships, getting married, moving out of home, setting up their own homes, and I felt like I was very much still the kid stuck at home with mum and dad because I had to be. I hadn't navigated how I was going to move out of home yet. I'd also really hoped that by that stage I would have met someone who wanted to share life with me, but that hadn't happened in my early 20s. So I just felt like I was really left behind, if that's a, in that sense. And I bought myself a property and I, I got quite sad at the fact that I, <laughs> that I was making plans to move into it all by myself and trying to feel buoyed by the fact that it's okay to, to, to live on your own. Obviously, that, that that never came to fruition because I met Paul not long after that. But in terms of pulling myself out of that space, it was going back to remembering all the really wonderful things that I had and being grateful for all the really fantastic things that were going right for me. I had an amazing family. I had my mum, my dad, and my sister, who at that time were the three people I loved most in the world, and they were the best support network ever. I had amazing friends, really amazing friends. I had a job that I really enjoyed. I had my sport. So there were, there were all these things that were going really well and were great. And I thought I can't let this one aspect, although it was a big part of life, you know, feeling a little bit lonely and left out is, is not something to be underestimated, but that wasn't going to define me at that point in time. There was still so much that I could actually focus on and enjoy. Yeah. And it's the power of connection, isn't it? When you're feeling lonely, having gone through depression and, and when you feel lonely, you don't actually feel like you want connection. Yeah. But if you get that connection, you feel so much better. Absolutely. And that's what it came down to is reaching out to my friends, making plans with my friends, and not feeling like I was the third wheel because they didn't feel like that. That was something that I was putting on myself. And just when I got an invite out, go, take the opportunity, go out. Don't, don't worry about being the only single person in the crowd, which wasn't the case. There were, some of my friends were still single at that time, but we all have the tendency to inflate the problem. And I felt like I was the only single person on earth at that point in time. So. Now, Kerry Lee, with all the, the challenges that you've had to go through through your life, there's obviously been a lot of successes. How has success for you changed through your life? Oh, that's a deep question. I think that as I'm getting older, to me, success success is measured by the number of human connections that I have, if that's if that makes sense. Yep. I think that experiences mean more than things nowadays and the people in my life are the most important thing. And so, yes, I work hard and I'm very grateful for my job, but work is not my only priority spending time with the people that I really care about and the people that I love the most, that's that's my priority. That's what matters most to me. I don't think you could have answered that any better. I thought that was beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to a young Kerry Lee? What advice would I give to young Kerry Lee? I would tell young Kerry Lee to to stop worrying about what everybody else is doing focus on what makes me happy, this time shall pass, <laughs> and to and to feel more confident in her own skin. I was always very at ease with my appearance, but I was always, especially in that early 20s, you know, I just felt a little bit 
uncomfortable in my own skin. And I think that came from being single and worrying whether I was ever going to be appealing to somebody else. And if I could go back, I'd say, just wait, just wait. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, that's great. Now, I wanted to ask you, who's been your greatest teacher in life? I think it's my folks. I think my parents have been my my greatest teachers. I've learned so much from mum and dad. I just think that they they did such a great job of making me and my sister feel so safe and secure when we were kids. And they, they did a lot of work around making me feel very confident as a young child. They never spoke for me. They never let anybody talk sort of through them to me. They would always very politely say, oh, you know, Kerry can actually answer that question for herself. I think they also taught me not to be, I'm, I'm going to get stares, I'm going to get comments, people are going to say the wrong thing, but mum and dad never let it be our default that we would snap back or be rude back or pass a, a snippy remark, even though, yeah, it was it was irritating at times to to have people staring or, or asking questions out of the blue, but they said, be polite, there's no need for rudeness, put yourself in their shoes, you've just seen somebody with no arms walk down the street it's unusual. People are going to want to ask you questions. They're going to want to stare. You're going to have to learn to deal with that politely and, and respectfully. That doesn't mean you have to answer every single intrusive question that you get asked, but there's a right and a wrong way to approach people. And I'm really, really glad they did it. They, they never let me be a victim. They never let me have a chip on my shoulder. And I think that's that, that lay the groundwork. And I think through your story I've heard today, your folks have come up quite a bit and really it seems like they have shaped you. Oh, very much so. I, th- I think I owe a lot to, to mum and dad. They've, I think they did a great job. <laughs> so, Even that moment when your mum nudged you into the pool. Yeah, I've forgiven her for that. Only, only just though. <laughs> they put up with me at home for 29 and a half years. I mean, my parents never made me feel that I wasn't welcome to stay at home. They never pushed me to move out of my own home or you know, to, to move out of home. But for them to dedicate a very, very big part of their adult life to having me around and being okay with that and never making me feel like I was a burden on them is, is, is pretty special. That's beautiful. And it's beautiful that you've got that relationship with them. Yeah. And you've had their support through life. Yeah. And my sister as well. I mean, my, my sister's always been incredible. I mean, she's also had to endure the stares and the questions and the comments. And Nikki, I've always said that when we were younger, Nikki was like my bodyguard. <laughs> she, she was the one who would Often, if there was a, a flight of steps that she was worried about me breaking my neck on, she's like, no, no, wait, I'm, I'm going in front of you because I don't want you to fall and hurt yourself. So, yeah, very good, great fan. Yeah. Your reflections, your story is inspirational. What advice have you got for people that are either born growing up with a disability? What advice have you got for them heading, into their, heading in and, and through life? My advice would be that don't expect everything to be possible. Like don't, I'm quite opposed to this idea that, oh, you know, Carrie Lee demonstrates that anything's possible. No, I don't because not everything is possible for me. There are things that will always, always be impossible, but I I focus on exploring, exploring and expanding what is possible for me. So it's about being curious, testing the waters. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter, but just try, Mm. be open to trying new things. The other really important message that I'd like to share is to, to get comfortable with being vulnerable. I don't think that asking for help or showing vulnerability or being a little bit transparent ever does any harm. And I think most of these interviews that I have on this podcast so far, it, I really talk about that comfort in the discomfort because as soon as you do something that's uncomfortable, yep. then you're comfortable doing it. Yep. So the more you do that is uncomfortable, the more comfortable you get. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Now, Kerrilee, if people are wanting to connect with you, the Wilmless Warrior, I think <laughs> you are on Instagram. But yeah, where's the best place for people to connect and, and kind of interact with you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, both using the Wingless Warrior. And my email address is very easy to remember as well. It's the winglesswarrior at gmail.com. So I'm more than happy for people to reach out. As you mentioned, I'm doing motivational and keynote speaking. So if you've got an event coming up and you need a keynote speaker, by all means, get in touch. <laughs> Excellent. I'll pop those things in the show notes as well. Thank you. But I really want to uh, honour you for your time today and acknowledge uh, your vulnerability. You're such an inspiring lady and it's been an absolute joy catching up with you today. I know that many of the reflections in your stories are, are really going to make an impact out there in the world and I wish you all the best with your swimming. Thank you. I look forward to keeping in touch on on Instagram and, and watching your endeavours as you move forward. Thanks, Steve. But just once again, completely grateful for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kerry Lee. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.